Good afternoon and welcome to the Institute of Government. My name is Nick Davies and I'm a Programme Director here. On behalf of the Institute and Baringa, who have kindly partnered with us on this event, thank you very much for joining us for the discussion on procurement in the pandemic. The government's ability to quickly and effectively procure goods and services was a critical part of the UK's response to coronavirus. Whether goods like PPE or services such as testing facilities, the government handed out large contracts, often to new suppliers, at greater speed and with less competition than normal. The government was faced with some very difficult choices and no easy options, raising questions about the decisions made and improvements that could be made in the future. So did the government strike the right balance between urgency and due process? How effective were government changes to procurement guidance? What lessons can be learned from the success of the approach to procurement taken by the Vaccine Task Force? And how can the lessons from the pandemic be applied to future crises and the government's procurement bill currently making its way through Parliament? To discuss these questions and more, I'm delighted to be joined by Gareth Rees-Williams, the Government Chief Commercial Officer, Sarah Ashley, partner at Baringa, and Steve Bates, the Chief Executive of the Bioindustry Association and former member of the Vaccine Task Force, uh, who has to leave 10 minutes before the end to rush to another meeting, but we will ask plenty of questions before then. Each of our speakers is going to make some opening remarks. I'll then ask a few follow-up questions before taking questions from the audience, both here in person and online. Uh, if you have any questions uh, for our panellists, please raise your hand if you're here in person or submit them using the Q&A function if you are watching online. Uh, and please give your name when doing so. Uh, if you're watching online, you can submit questions while we're speaking and I'll try to get through as many of them as possible. Finally, we will be live tweeting from the at IFG events account and using the hashtag IFG procurement. And I'd encourage you all, whether in person or watching live, to tweet as well. Right, without uh, further ado, I'm going to hand over to Gareth Rees-Williams, Government <coughs> Chief Commercial Officer. Nick, thank you very much. Uh, uh, good afternoon, everybody. It's great, great to be here. I, I love Nick's uh, intro there. We'll be discussing all of these items and more in an hour and a half. <laughs> uh, so obviously, there's a large-ish inquiry uh, getting uh, up to speed, uh, on which will cover a lot of these subjects. So I think we will, frankly, only be able to skim some of them. I just got a few comments to open, and then I think that, that it'll be interesting to, to see where everyone's questions take us. So some overarching uh, comments here. Some fantastic things happened during the pandemic. None of us would have wished to have been in the pandemic to start with, and obviously there were uh, you know, huge, huge issues societally right across uh, the country. But if we sort of focus on you know, the, the, the question in hand, we did really well on you know, reintroducing, allowing multifunctional teams. Multifunctional teams, including ministers, including uh, uh, colleagues from, from industry, from academia, all sorts of, you know, this, this came together well. Frankly, we should be careful that we don't lose that ability or that knowledge that I think the wider, wider industry has sort of embedded on, on multifunctional teams and why they work better and faster and so on. Um, so we should give ourselves a, a, a tick on that. We should also give ourselves a tick from a procurement uh, perspective. The PPNs, the procurement uh, uh, notices, saved hundreds of thousands of, of, of jobs. They came out nice and, nice and quickly, you know, on prompt payment, on how do we make sure that we flex our KPIs so that we don't put our vendor base, uh, frankly, pushing them into insolvencies. We changed our 
our volume requirements. This is not on the sexy things that we'll talk about on, on vaccines. This is on things as, as, as mundane as you know, contracts for supplying swimming pool guards when we shut all our swimming pools. We could have easily have pushed a lot of those vendors into insolvency, and we, we managed to have sidestep all of that. And while, while boring, it was massively important. So that, I think, was, all, was good. But Nick used a, a word in his intro which uh, I think points to one of the issues we've got and, and touches on some changes we need to make to our regs. So we didn't compete things with as much competition as we could. And I guess the case that is in always in everyone's mind on that is, is PPE. So our, our regs at the moment, <clears throat> a formal competition takes a minimum of 21 days. We were in a sort of the closing, those of you who use eBay, and there are other providers, um, you know, those of you who use eBay, it's, we were in a, 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 a two month long process that was like the last two minutes of an eBay uh, auction every day, every minute, every hour. I've got some product, do you want it or I'll sell it to the Italians? Um, and it was, you know, like that. So we then had to move to a, well, are we confident that we're buying the, the stuff that will turn up and is good? Are we reasonably confident that it's within an acceptable price for the market at this minute? It was a trading situation, not a procuring situation. Now, those, that by nature is outside of today's rules. And that, therefore, caused a number of other issues we'll come back to, come back to one of them. So one of the things we've got built into the new procurement regs is the idea of how do we procure during a, price, during a crisis? <coughs> and to uh, embed some rules of best practice how to do that when you're in that very fast-moving uh, environment that would then be accepted rules rather than outside of the rules. Because when things are outside of the rules, we rightly have to publish a lot more information uh, on our contracts as to why we've gone outside the rules, why we're buying in less than a 21-day process, who have we awarded the product to, and so on and so on and so forth. And that led to a different problem, which, is, you know, which has led to a, a, you know, a huge uh, public narrative, which I think is unjustified, um, because it took us so long to publish all that additional information, we got behind on our contract publishing, no question. Where we should have published uh, contract details in 30 days, it was taking us 90 days, 120 days. Um, we just frankly ran out of people um, because of the extra paperwork involved in that. And that has allowed a, well, you haven't published the contract, therefore there must be something dodgy going on, uh, narrative, which even the NEO, who you know, are, are rightly critical uh, at times, you know, made the comment, no ministers were involved in procurement decisions or contract management for PPE, but because we hadn't produced the contracts because we ran out of time because of the extra workload, we weren't able to, to prove that point for months, and that has caused some issues. I suspect there'll be a question on that. So that idea of you know, fast uh, mini-competitions, fast uh, beauty parades, in a crisis situation, I think, is a key part of the, of the new regs. Similarly, um, we've tightened up, or we hope to tighten up, depending on how Parliament uh, views the procurement bill that's in front of it today, uh, on conflicts of, conflicts of interest. How do we make those much clearer? How do we make that much clearer ex ante rather than ex post 
so that uh, we avoid uh, perceptions <coughs> of, uh, of, of wrongdoing uh, in, in the press and in the, in, in the public mind. Um, and then I think, and I think, I suspect my colleagues on the panel will talk about this. There's a whole industrial policy, how much uh, industrial policy question around how much money do we want to invest in a non-pandemic against the day that we have another pandemic? This is the insurance point. Every year we all sign our car, car insurance, our house insurance, maybe health insurance, and when nothing happens, we go, oh damn, that was money wasted, uh, until of course, the day we cancel it and then the next day we have a car crash or the next day the roof blows off and we go, oh drat, I wish I had more insurance. So for a lot of items that we needed to buy quickly during the pandemic, we were buying through distributors or we didn't imagine we would need as much of that as we, it turned out we did need. So when we ran out of PPE because we were buying through distributors, we didn't know who the manufacturers were and therefore we fell into the hands of intermediaries, as did every other Western country, so we're not alone on this. Um, are we prepared to invest the money now, and hopefully for a very long time before the next pandemic, in order to stop the cost implications in the next pandemic? That's an industrial policy question. Same story on the manufacture of these things. How much of these this vaccines, uh, ventilators, or PPE, other things that we've discovered that we were short of, do we want to have in the UK, in Europe, subject to what trade agreements, and how much do we want to leave uh, at, at the mercy uh, of, of a world market? That's a policy question, and we've found in the pandemic that we wish we'd answered those questions 10 years before. But we've now got the moment to think about those as we go forwards and, and plan for you know, what is hoped will hopefully never arise, but statistically probably will when we have another one. So those were my uh, summary comments. Nick, I hope that's uh, food for thought and food for discussion. Lots of food for thought. Thank you very much. I'm going to hand over now to Sarah Ashley, partner at Barunga. Hi, everybody. I'm Sarah, and nice to see you all on this Monday lunchtime. Um, because people often ask me, who are Baringa? I'll do two, two seconds on that, people nodding. Yes, who are you? Um, so we're a UK-headquartered global consultancy. We work across energy, financial services, products, and also in government. Um, we describe ourselves as proudly geeky about the industries and capabilities we work in, which in practice means I love government commercial, which is good <laughs> that I'm here today. Um, we were fortunate enough to work with government on a number of pandemic projects, um, from PPE buying to test and trace and on the vaccines project. And we're also currently working with government on some critical projects now, so with the energy task force in Bayes. Across each of these projects, we saw incredible work, indeed the very best of government. So I've worked in government for the last 20 years, the very best of government during that time. It made us really proud and to see our vaccines team go with NHS England to win the supply chain awards last week really kind of rounded out that journey for us. But we also saw instances where kind of quite frankly, as taxpayers, we thought some more thinking may have been done beforehand for pandemic preparedness. In my mind, there were three things which really stood out for the very best commercial work we were involved in. Um, there was expert innovation, so people who really knew what they were doing and talking about innovative ways of doing it. I'm sure Steve will talk about some of that in the vaccines. Um, they had pace and they had scale. And there was learnings across, you could also say they had women in charge of them, but that's probably not very politically correct. <coughs> um, they, across each of those, there's learnings in all of those for future pandemics and for business as usual today. 
And across each of those, I think there were probably three enablers, which we see as common themes. Having the right team in place, so really well-qualified commercial professionals who knew what they were doing. Those teams have, having the right data, and that didn't mean all of the data, but enough data to make good decisions. And then when they worked in the right structures, so governance which worked for them, and multidisciplinary teams, as Gareth has spoken about, we really saw the magic happen. So I'm really looking forward to here today to being here on the panel, to hearing the reflections from the team in the room and also from my other fellow panelists. Thank you very much. Uh, and now to our final speaker, Steve Bates. Thank you. Uh, afternoon, everybody. So I'm Steve Bates. My day job is I'm the, chair, the chief executive of the, uh, of the UK Bioindustry Association, the trade association for innovative life science companies. Uh, but during the pandemic, uh, I was drafted in to uh, be on the steering board of the vaccine task force, in part because I'd put together some of the connections amongst small companies that became the supply chain for the Oxford AstraZeneca piece, and then got other experts involved from an industry side. So I think I bring an industry perspective to this. I'm not a, a procurement expert. So <clears throat> I suppose my big opening thought is that I think procurement should be seen in the context of industrial strategy. Uh, the nation will end up with the industries and companies that it chooses to buy from and have a series of relationships with those, uh, those companies as a result of that, that, that relationship. One of the things we tried very hard to do in the vaccine task force, realising that the UK was outside of Europe and up against the US, who was obviously looking at doing things very, very fast and with a lot of money, was we tried to be the best possible customer and bring to bear all the other things <coughs> that we could do to partner uh, with um, with, with uh, global players and innovators, because it was a strange world. You had very small companies who were trying to make vaccines as well as very big companies trying to make vaccines. And actually the companies that were successful in developing vaccines were the small companies who'd partnered with the big companies. It's Oxford, Oxford University and AstraZeneca. It's um, uh, BioNTech and Pfizer. Pfizer couldn't do it on their own, BioNTech could do it. And then a number of other ones which didn't work. We have to remember GSK tried very hard and didn't get a, a vaccine together. Um, uh, Sanofi, a usual big vaccine player, tried and didn't get one together. So the point being, we tried to be really good partners. Um, I reflect on some of the points you made. I think we were, we were fantastically lucky in the vaccine task force to be able to pick the star players from all of the various different parts of things that could come from them. And uh, Maddie McTurnan not only is the star player in government uh, procurement in vaccines, but I think she's been put into play in any, every difficult role there is uh, hitherto. I'm sure there's lots of other fantastic people in uh, UK commercial, but Maddie has been moved around and uh, made, <coughs> made very high profile as a result of the work she's done uh, at Vaccines, which was fantastic. Um, but we were, did have that multifunctional team. Um, it's interesting you talk about conflicts of interests. Well, um, I th sort of think you need people who know what they're talking about. And one of the challenges, which is the other side of the conflict of interest, is if people aren't interested, they don't actually know very much about the thing. And you usually need some people who are deep experts in that. And I saw the crossfire that Kate Bingham went through for doing a very, very selfless and amazing job. And I think when I phone up my next expert and say, do you want to get involved in this? Um, which fool is going to say, yes, I want to be put through the ringer for for a year on, uh, on that. So I think we just need to think about that from, you know, from, 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 from the other side. And, <clears throat> and if people aren't conflicted, do they really have enough interest? Um, <clears throat> but I think it's right. I mean, I think openness, and you've got to think about that in a, in a proper sense. Final point is pace and risk. The reason why the vaccine task force worked, I think, is because we took 
decisions at pace and some things that worked in the pandemic, like having ministers meet together under prime ministerial direction with all the information going to them very fast with the, uh, it's all by the end of the week so they can make a decision, cuts through a lot of process that can go round and round and round otherwise. So pace is really important. And understanding the basis of the risk that you're carrying and the, and the benefits of moving at pace. So essentially, if you can reopen your economy faster, and we can now see the difference between China and, and Europe and, uh, and America. If you can reopen faster, you do get economic benefit, and how do you factor that in? So the question for me is, we went into the pandemic with one, one company which had one factory that could make vaccines in an old-fashioned technology out of Liverpool where people carry trays of eggs around. Are we getting right to the right place going forward? And I realise that you can't cover every risk in its entirety with the government budget. You've got thousands of risks, you know, floods and everything else to, to worry about. But what's the appropriate thing to come out with? And because we've got such a great life science sector, um, if we invest and support, <clears throat> I think, at the innovative stage and are close to the innovators, we can have things there that can have global impact and effect if we get it right going forward. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm going to quickly ask um, each of the panellists um, some questions but before I come to the audience. But please do have a think about the questions you would like to ask when I come to you. Um, Gareth, I'm going to come to you first, uh, and I'm going to ask about it because it's the, been the thing that's been in the news uh, recently. So there's been lots in the news about uh, Baroness Moan and uh, PPE MedPro. I'm not going to ask about the specific case because I know there's um, some kind of legal action happening there, but there are two interesting elements to it, which I think speak to wider phenomenon, which would be um, which have been picked up so far in the discussion. First, that they were contracts won by a company uh, via the VIP lane, that, and they'd been referred there via someone who was connected to the government. And second, that large volumes of the PPE that was supplied ended up being unusable. So I wondered if we could talk about those kind of wider phenomenon. So you talked about the uh, kind of the difficulty of buying at pace and the kind of new regulations. In a future crisis, do you think we would need something like a VIP lane or some kind of other way of referring providers? Because I know you were dealing with thousands of organisations getting in touch. How would you kind of reform that VIP lane process so that people can be recommended, but maybe in a more yeah. consistent way? <clears throat> okay, oh gosh, how long have we got? So a um, <laughs> couple of things to say here. So uh, let's, let's stay away from that, that, that particular case. So I think we've learned a few lessons so on ventilators, which I ran, and, and vaccines, you know, the appeals for help went through an industry channel. So on ventilators, we got together the peop some people in the life sciences, uh, med tech uh, world, got them together very quickly, and the prime minister asked them who they would recommend we work with. And so while we did end up with a you know, very wide engagement, we didn't end up with a global call to arms, who anywhere has got any PPE? Um, because unfortunately that drowned the system. I think we had 16,000 uh, uh, replies, some of them very helpful, some of them very helpful indeed, but for you know, tiny volumes. Uh, and we, we just couldn't, couldn't process that. So I think the first thing is, let's not get ourselves into a situation where we need a, 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 a VAP, VIP lane. Second point, a lot of, very helpful people, well-connected people, are, that run businesses also happen to be Tory voters, some of them Tory donors. 
some of the most successful people are very widely networked. And in an attempt to be helpful, they'd ring 20 different people. Uh, and then, you know, with the Newsnight stories and, and everything, and with, with the, you know, ghastly scenes uh, in, in hospitals, um, you know, there's huge political pressure. Why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you doing more? Um, and that just generated more calls from the same people. I've got this stuff, why, you know. So we need some handling process. Now, I think going forwards, let's, as I say, work with people in the relevant industry, but let's also have that handling activity run by a different group of people, not a procurement team, because that gave the wrong, Im wrong impression. When you look at the VIP lane, 90% of those referrals went nowhere. We bought from 10% of the, of, the, of the people that came through that VIP lane. Um, we actually spent more with the non-VIP lane uh, 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 people, uh, but those were generally folks within the industry that we'd already known. What, uh, what clogged up the VIP lane was these intermediaries we talk, that I mentioned in my, in my opening, uh, opening, opening comments, who are very vociferous and you know, very good at ringing lots and lots of people. Um, interestingly, while we've had, a, um, uh, in a number of cases from the Good Law Project and others, I think um, we've won 95% of those. The one we've lost on is whether the VIP lane uh, was legal or not. And even in that case, the judge, I won't, don't, I won't get, her, get the judge's words exactly right, um, but the sense of it was no other procurement decision would have been taken without the VIP lane. Because where we were was a situation where we would buy from anyone who had product that was qualified that was in a, a price band. Um, <clears throat> this talks a little bit actually to, to comment that Sarah made about, about forecasting. So our initial forecasts well, the initial forecasts that were being used was that 20% of what we bought wouldn't show up, and 20% of it that did turn up would be rubbish. At the end of the day, it was about 1% and 5%. And that's partly why we've ended up with so much, so much stuff that is now going end of life. So your unusable point, Nick, has to bear in mind, well, we, we, shouldn't, be using, we shouldn't be asking medical teams to use stuff that's gone, gone end of life. So that's what generates those there's very large numbers. Where we've had a uh, product that's turned up where it's been fraudulent, uh, where the product hasn't met spec, we've rejected that, and we are um, uh, you know, engaged in a variety of actions, legal and otherwise, to, to recover taxpayers' money on that. Uh, can I just ask on that spec point, the extent to which when stuff hasn't turned, that has turned up that's unusable, is that because the supplier hasn't delivered what they said they would deliver or that the, the buyer hasn't specced it properly and they have delivered what they were meant to, it just turns out that it was specced incorrectly. So there are some, so a lot of, all of the above. So um, this is what, so back to how do, we buy, how do we choose to buy, back to uh, everyone's comments on industrial strategy. Um, so some of the things that aren't usable, um, just an example. I can't remember the name of the vendor, but gowns. So when we were desperate for gowns, then them coming in in a pack of 10 didn't really matter because as soon as it arrived, everyone would rip open the pack and, and grab them. But generally, sterile gowns should only come in packs of one because if you open the pack, then there's a risk that the rest of you know, becomes non-sterile. So those now in a non-crisis, we would say are non-usable. At the time, you know, doctors were prepared to say, well, it's, if it's that or nothing, so uh, 
this is more this is more more complicated. Also, I think we have to accept that specs were changing as we learnt about the pandemic. And I'm talking particularly about PP, but also in ventilators which I ran which I ran. Initially we were looking for anything that could that, that could uh, get air, uh, oxygen, into a patient. But as soon as we solved that problem, of course, the, the, the uh, medics on the team rightly moved the spec up and up and up and up and up and up, uh, such that the ventilators we ended up making were, in fact, as good as the ones we've been buying uh, for years. So <coughs> we had to then turn off the volume for the product that no longer met the developing spec. So you get that sort of wastage. And I think this comes back to a point that, uh, uh, that Steve made, actually. If we want to innovate quickly, which we do in this sort of situation, but I think we probably do in lots of situations, we have to accept that if, you don't, if you're developing a product quickly, most industries where I came from, I think where Steve came from, where Sarah comes from, if people had perfect, a perfect vision of which uh, draft product, which design would work, which vaccine was actually going to work, and which ones wouldn't work, you'd only obviously buy the one that you knew brilliantly was going to work. But that's not how real life is. You have to take you know, an element of spread bet and say, well, these are the four or five, and half dozen in the case of vaccines that we think will work. Some of those will fail a test, in which case, but we don't know which ex ante. On ventilators, we started with 25. We ended up with five uh, designs that worked. And we, but <clears throat> we had to fund the process to get to that. And that's in the nature of rapid innovation. And I think one of the, that's a lesson that I, I would hope we don't forget. Um, most industrial companies would, would know that. Most pharma companies would know, uh, would know that. Most private equity companies would know that you'll only get you know, 10, 20% hit rate. Um, and we've got to accept that uh, in turn if we want to do things very quickly. And I would like to come to that risk appetite point uh, in a second. Um, so I wanted to come to you um, first. You talked about kind of the importance of bringing expertise in, and it was something that Nigel Borman in his review of government procurement also highlighted, that things tend to work best where there are combined teams of experts, civil servants, kind of overseen by those with uh, commercial expertise. I wondered what your sense was the extent to which as the kind of the threat from the pandemic has receded, that government has retained that external expertise, whether from kind of consultancies or industries or elsewhere, and whether that's through kind of on an ad hoc basis or whether there are kind of any institutional mechanisms that have been used for that. Yeah, it's um, a good question. I think there's what when you when we brought together expertise. That meant external and across government. So one of the things I think government did really well is begin to move people around the different departments. And I think I've seen some of that go backwards a bit. I'll go back to my home department. I'd love to encourage Gareth and the government commercial function to continue that proactive moving of talent around the team um, and pastoral care as they move around. Um, bringing in external expertise was necessary because there was a capacity challenge. You know, Gareth talked about the number of responses coming in, so there was an enormous capacity challenge. And you had to work through that to get to the right capability. Um, be because it was a necessity, that's forced it. I think we have gone back a little bit, so I think of some of the work that I'm doing, and there is sometimes a reluctance from the buying teams and the commercial teams to engage the market early in, in different ideas. And 
because they're a bit nervous that this will cause some kind of legal challenge. I think my encouragement would be to all commercial teams engage with the market expertise earlier to shape your thinking about what you want to do. Um, and then you may find that you need to bring it in, but let's bring it in in a controlled way. Um, you mentioned a bit um, risk appetite. Um, clearly, kind of in the teeth of the pandemic, there was kind of much higher risk appetite. Uh, clearly, that's going to inevitably that's going to have reduced a bit since. Uh, I wonder where your sense is, kind of where the risk aversion comes from. Is it kind of is it ministers worried about how they can um, defend kind of the inevitable failures that come through kind of investing in multiple things, uh, as Gareth says, or is it from kind of civil servants or a combination of the two? <coughs> I'm, I don't know. Is the honest answer to that? I, I I don't think it. I don't see it in ministers, and I don't see it in. In civil servants, particularly, I think there's a bit of a nervousness about the NAO sometimes, which is perhaps unfounded. I mean, if you think about it, when we went to the government, we were selling the idea that there might be a vaccine, and the first thing we said is nobody's ever made a vaccine in less than five years, and nobody's ever done a, uh, a human uh, coronavirus vaccine ever. So um, it's a long shot, and hence the title of the great book by Kate Bingham, Please Buy It for Christmas, uh, which sets some of this out, the long shot. It was a long shot. And we spent a long time arguing that we had to try this very risky thing because of the potential upside. So the risk is there's risk in not doing something as well as risk in doing something. And balancing that risk is the is the crucial thing. If I the absence of not doing something is not a risk-free option. It feels like it is, but it isn't over the long term. I think buying innovation is really hard and, and procuring innovation because you don't, as you say, it changes all the time. It's going to change every three months. It's like buying a Formula One car, that you, the, the technology race is happening at such a pace that if you buy it here, you're going to need to rebuy it in a different format. Industry can cope with that, but you can't set all of that on, 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 on 10-year things. And on your point about um, set up across government, the Vaccine Task Force was deliberately set up outside of its home department in DH, if you like, or outside the Public Health England because of top of government concerns around, uh, around processes within those departments. Now we've seen much of this responsibility in vaccines go back to the UK Health Security Agency, um, which is Public Health England in a new format. Um, I think it's difficult for them to marshal the, 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 the level of expertise and cross-government support to make some of these strategic decisions, which is where I would put this for the next pandemic. And that's really where it's gone backwards. So it's back down in the weeds. And that means that people have got to go around and gather the support across government, whereas if the Prime Minister tells you to do it, it's much easier to do things fast and at risk. Thank you. I'm going to open it up to um, questions, uh, firstly from the audience here in person. There'll be a roving mic uh, for those who have questions. Uh, can I ask that you please keep your questions short uh, and ensure that they actually are questions uh, and not statements? Uh, please also say your name and where you are from. Uh, there's somebody right at the back there. Thank you very much. I was listening. And I had a bit of a smile on my face because um, it reminded me of Teddy Roosevelt, the man in the arena. And I guess you were all in the arena at the time of the corona. But I want, what I wanted to you say... Can you say where, uh, your name and where you're from? Uh, my name is Dr. Amonu. Um, I'm a graduate um, in life sciences from Hopkins, where I also took um, classes in public health. Um, I think where the um, government may have heard is that when the coronavirus issue started in 20, I was following it from December 2020, 
is that it adopted a centralized, I'd like your comments, a centralized approach rather than a bottom-down approach, a community-based approach going up. If you look at the list of the countries and um, the rates of coronavirus, you find that those who have had a community approach have fared a lot better. And we could have, um, perhaps, when in people were on furlough, sort of organized communities around masking, et cetera, rather than jumping straight to um, vaccines. PPEs could have been put perhaps produced. I think also... Sorry, could I ask you to come to a final question? Yeah, I'm question, going to come and say, yeah. I think saying that it was multicultural is not the issue. We're talking about intersectionality in terms of experience. And um, what, what are we going to do about it moving forward? Because we're going to have another pandemic and we need different mindsets in, in changing that. Thank you. Thank you. And I think there was uh, one other question right there as well. We'll take those two together. Hi, um, my name is Aaron Arrell. I'm a civil servant. Uh, I will be quick. There's a, uh, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. My favorite Christmas movie is It's a Wonderful Life. And in it, George Bailey is uh, dealing with a bank that has a run on it. So a bit like your eBay question earlier. There's lots of competition and people are going up and asking to withdraw their money. And he says, I know what you want. How much do you need? How much will get you through this phase? So my question is, the World Health Organization up to February in 2020 said that masks were not needed. And they did that primarily to preserve masks and PPE for medical staff and for people who were treating people. Um, in such a fast-moving environment, how on earth do you cope? Excellent. Two very thoughtful questions there. Uh, Gavin, I might come to you first, particularly on the kind of central versus kind of more local. And I suppose there were some good examples of that where there's been some criticism of government. So for example, on uh, tracing, that we went for a kind of national outsource system rather than making better use of the kind of capacity that uh, was in local government. What are your kind of thoughts on decisions, how we, we might do it differently in a future crisis? Gosh, um, <clears throat> so my, my comments, so maybe I, maybe I wasn't, wasn't clear enough to, to uh, Dr. Munud. Uh, I was talking about multifunctional ra rather than uh, 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 rather than a, a, a diversity point. Um, that, that that is also true. So on test and trace to centralise or decentralise, I wasn't part of that decision, but I can I suspect the the thinking was how do we generate consistency in scale? Um, I think with what we developed. You know, towards the end of the uh, uh, pandemic, uh, with you know lab in a box uh, type systems, we moved a lot of the, the, the engineering team who were doing ventilators over to uh, to help with that. We did actually find a solution that might have given us a distributed and consistent, but we didn't have it at the get-go. So I don't know how many other options were available. I, mean, I, I think that's really a question for the pharmacologists who would understand the difficulty of dispersed testing and consistency. Um, I think to your point, to your first to your point about PPE manufacturing, so <clears throat> the things we were, you know, eyewear we've found is very and visors and so we found it's very easy uh, to manufacture locally. PPE, yes, it turns up in gowns, it turns up in uh, in, uh, in, uh, in in masks, but it starts life on rolls about as wide as this as this table that come off machines that cost a couple hundred million quid a pop. Um, and we don't have any of those in the UK. So acquiring the roles, chopping them up, 
and, and fabricating garments here is, is, is one solution, but, if it, but actually to secure the supply, you need the, the, the very expensive, uh, you know, highly capital intensive machines, which we have started to have, but we did not have at the time. Um, so if, it's a slightly road to Dublin type question. We might, we know where we want to, want to get to, but it, perhaps we weren't starting in the, in, in the right place. Um, your comments about you know volume and you know switches in volume. I wasn't aware of that. I've, you learn something new every day. I wasn't aware of that uh, World Health Organization uh, uh, perspective, but it comes back to the industrial policy point I mentioned earlier. How much money are we prepared to put into insurance stocks and then the maintenance of them against an event that we hope will never happen? And it's very easy to trim those and trim those and trim those and then, oops you suddenly realise you don't have enough. As I say, <clears throat> we're in very good company there. Every other Western government fell into exactly uh, the same trap. But it is very difficult. You know, the policy choice of, hmm, we're deliberately going to cycle through a few hundred million of PPE that goes end of life in order to maintain a high stock when that couple hundred million could achieve some other policy, you know, how many schools is that? How many nurses is that? How many... <clears throat> how many other things that the society desperately needs. That eventually is a, is a political uh, trade-off. Um, uh, it's down to um, you know, how often do you think pandemics are going to, going to occur? Well, that's fortunately um, outside, of my, outside of my remit or skill set. Sarah? Um, I, I think it's a really interesting question about the kind of central approach and decentralise. And I agree with Gareth. You know, there are many, many options available at small scale. There aren't many options available for you at large scale. So you're always trying to <coughs> balance, off the, balance off the scale. And I think my encouragement or the lesson that we take into the teams that we work with is, as a commercial professional, think about volumes and scale earlier on, you know, Quite a lot of times, if I, if I take it completely out of the pandemic context and talk about technology disaggregation, clients will say to us, we want to disaggregate this technology and, and they'll go into a commercial strategy to achieve that. The outcome of that is that said department or said company needs to employ 300 technology professionals. Um, well, that might change your commercial strategy if you're not going to be able to do that. So bringing in scale into everything is really important. And I think that's why we ended up with this kind of centralised model. Um, I think there's lots to learn. I think we could have decentralised stuff earlier. There was actually better communities out there who would have been able to help that. And that would be one thing that would encourage people to do kind of as we go further forward. Um, yeah, and that's what I would add to it. So, so I think that some decentralised approaches were, were tried. Um, so if you look at things like health is devolved in the UK. So we've got four countries that operate different health systems and structures. Uh, so you've got, the, if you want, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England as different ways in which policy was exhibited. What was interesting in vaccines was everybody chose to go in a centralised route. They, there was an active choice to, to come together there rather than operate locally. Second point, public health investment in the UK had gone down for a decade. And if you look at the breaking up of how it had worked from, from years ago, Perhaps there's some learnings we need to have there about those models um, and, and therefore engaging with particular, uh, particular communities that are harder to reach uh, is important as part, part of that. And thirdly, I wouldn't wait for the World Health Organization for anything. Can <laughs> um, take some um, questions online. Uh, Steve, I'm going to put this one 
to you. Uh, someone has asked uh, whether the panel feel that money spent on vaccines, any of the money spent on vaccines, was wasted uh, in any way, uh, given how many other country, how other countries also spread their bets but didn't seem to waste as much. Well, my answer to that is I hope so. I mean, I hope we wasted some money uh, because uh, you know nobody should have. You know, we were trying to spread our spread our bets. Uh, I mean, it depends what you mean by wasted. Did we do some? Did we spend some money on some stuff that didn't didn't work, or, or didn't didn't come out to the to the end point in the in the best way possible with the perfect with perfect hindsight? Well, probably is the answer to that. Uh, did the fact that we spent money early and fast on products like Valneva indicate that we understood that there might be different modes of action, and those modes of action might be uh, more more uh, sustaining in the long term? And and we did work on clinical trials to develop that. Yes, we did. Um, and uh, were we able, as a UK, to then offer some of the uh, some of the doses that we had uh, we had procured and therefore were being made to a global pool rapidly? Uh, yeah, we, we we were. Um, so I I hope we were able to uh, to, to to make a difference. And you know, if we overspent a bit, then I think there was value in it, even if it wasn't perfect value. Uh, Gareth, question here um, for you. Um, you made the point about uh, paying for house insurance uh, and nothing happens, uh, but when you know a hurricane is coming, you don't wait uh, for it to hit before you do anything. Uh, and do you think, therefore, that government was too late to start ramping up its PPE purchasing at the beginning of the pandemic? Well, <clears throat> the thing is, if you, if you have, as a household have detected, um, to, to pursue the analogy, if you as a householder have detected that there's a hurricane coming, there's a good chance insurance companies have also detected that. <laughs> and therefore, <clears throat> what used to be the cost of insurance is probably not the cost of insurance today. And I think that's, that's the issue. Um, and it, when there's also a limited supply, uh, to, you know, to stretch the analogy, a limited supply of insurance, and your neighbours have heard the same news article that you have heard, then that's when you run into capacity constraints, and that's when you really run into price escalation, and that's what we that's what we saw on a number of categories that we were we were trying to uh, trying to get our get our hands on, which is back to the insurance point, which needs and and back to uh, advice and thinking from you know the medical profession, the pharmaceutical uh, experts as to what is a risk adjusted uh, amount of X, Y, or Z that we should have uh, either in stock or the ability to pay for. So, um, you know, if we, if, we, if we say, now that we know who will take PPE, now that we know who all the manufacturers are, we could say to them, okay, we're going to buy 100 units uh, a month, uh, but, uh, well, that'll cost so much, uh, but we want the, you to reserve the capacity for 1,000 units a month, just in case. Well, they will charge us for keeping those machines sat there, non-occupied. So how much are we prepared to pay for that? Do we say, well, OK, actually, gosh, that's expensive. Uh, we'll pay to reserve just 300 uh, additional units a month. Well, what happens when the hurricane does hit and we do actually need not 1,000 but 2,000? We still have a shortage. So th this is where the judgment and forecasting becomes, you know, really so, so, key, so, so key, but we must do more of that. Because one of the issues we got into with PPE was when we ran out, when we found it very difficult to get hold of, when we, when we started 
to, uh, uh, to, to look to source more. Unsurprisingly, and this is you know, human behavior, and again, I don't want to prejudge what comes out of the inquiry, but human behavior in any shortage situation is to then overbuy, and you get into a, an oscillation until you eventually end up where, where you, you, you should go. So bear in mind also, China had its own COVID issues. Factories were shut left and right. Same story in vaccines, same story in ventilators, same story on, on everything. So if you go to someone and say, well, actually, we need 20 times more than we needed before, uh, we're prepared to pay for that. They say, well, actually, we don't have that capacity. Um, we can put in a new line for that at 200 million or whatever it is, but only if you give us not just this order, but orders to cover two or three years. Hmm, okay. Now that's where the money really starts uh, to, uh, to come in, which is, comes back to the industrial policy question. Do we want to invest in enough capacity in the UK to cover today's needs? Do we want to invest to cover the surge needs? In which case, we've got to accept that for hopefully the next 99 years, uh, while the 100 year event comes around again, that capacity is idle, being maintained, ready to go at a month's notice. Hmm. The, which comes then back to the question that oh, the, the, the gentleman asked uh, earlier that how do we trade those political costs off against the more immediate use for that money on other parts of the health service or other uh, things that um, we as, as, as a society would, would want our tax, tax money spent on? I think there's one thing in my mind which we could do which doesn't uh, cost so much is that it was clear when we were doing PPE buying that our regulations and standards do not translate across the globe. <laughs> and actually, that mix of regulators was quite a confused picture. Yep. So if, if, you know, if we had our time again, I would want our regulators to have an approach to, to being able to change the regulations as, you, as we went through. And I think that would have helped us all in our, that kind of collective buying. And, and if you look at what we were buying or we were thinking about developing, were we buying, were we developing, were we co-creating on the vaccine task force? We were developing a regulated product and we were buying it before it had gone through regulation. But we were also leaning in and saying, the fact that we've got in the MHRA in the UK a regulator that will be responsive, that will, that will look at chapters in the book in, in sequence so that you know where you're up to on the way along was an important part of encouraging global players to come here first. Pfizer could have put their product anywhere in the world. One of the big reasons why they chose to bring it here was because we were able to demonstrate clinical trial capability. So these are the other factors that you've yeah. got uh, and, uh, and, and a regulator that would, would operate. No, I, I think Steve makes an excellent point and we should have you know, called out the, the fantastic role the regulator played in a number of instances. Having the regulator in the room, allowing us to take decisions and you know, place orders for things, not to issue them, until the regulator had approved. Clearly, that would have been un totally unacceptable. And this is not about uh, reducing the power of the regulator or the ability of the regulator to say, no, that is not good enough, but allowing us to move forwards in parallel uh, to get start uh, production, start factories making stuff, and then if it was approved, then issue it, that rather than waiting to the regulator to approve the samples, then place orders, we would have found that we, you know, there was nothing left to buy and we would have injected 
you know, perhaps a year's delay, I don't know, into vaccines, maybe more, and similar in other products. I'm just going to get another round of questions, because I know there are lots of people who want to come in. I'm going to come uh, right to the front uh, here first, uh, uh, and then there. Hello, Jill Rutter, I'm a colleague of Nick's. I wanted to ask, when I was working in government, we were doing quite a lot, uh, quite a lot of interest in what was called advanced procurement, where the government would try to shape markets by setting out. So I just wondered, in the light of that, and the experience of the vaccine task force, maybe to all the panel, maybe just to Steve, what are the sort of most promising areas to apply a vaccine task force model beyond this to problems that the government knows it's going to have to face? I mean, net zero is one of the possible areas. I just wondered where you thought this might be most promising, maybe where the government's already on the case, Gareth. I might just come to Steve on that very quickly now, because I know you have yeah. to run. So I, I think we have... I would go with where have we got a unique set of, um, of capabilities in the UK that solve a global problem because then we can build an industry where we can also flog stuff to foreigners, um, exports as they're also known. Um, and, uh, but I think there are some things like the National Institute of Biological Standards and Control who can do the assays for these types of things. Some of the capabilities we've got in Portland Down which the Americans will look at. And I would then say, okay, take a big set of the questions and then try and say, what have we got that's globally relevant against these things? I think there are some bits in life sciences uh, and I'm sure there's bits in other things as well. I mean, you know, you're not gonna procure everything for everybody, but I think probably the heritage that we've got in some of the global health stuff from the School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, plus the deep science in NIBSC and Portland Down and some of the leading universities and some capabilities in innovative companies would take, would be where I would place that chip. And then you can look at organizations like ARIA our equivalent of DARPA as ways in which you could, you could really put money against that. It's a subtle question, as always. So there are a number of areas where I think this, you know, fail fast, you know, down select type, type of model that we've got government, we've got two really good examples where we've used that now in, in government that have been, you know, both of them very successful. You know, we've got energy issues. Well, you know, what, what are the available technologies that we could use? Which ones... How do we select the best athlete through a process rather than thinking we can sit here, you know, very wise and choose the one solution today that will work when, frankly, you know, these are R&D uh, projects? And it comes back to what Sarah said earlier. You know, how do we specify the outcomes we want rather than, you know, how, rather than specifying all the ingredients the whole time? And that's, that the procurement teams have a role to play in that. But it's, it's about what are we trying to achieve, and then, then we can set up the industries that will help deliver a range of solutions, one of which might actually work. Um, we'd, we'd, we need to be a little bit more thoughtful on that. Let's go back. Charles, there were two questions right next to you. I think we can probably fit in both. Uh, Gus Tugendhat at Tussle. Uh, I've got a question about consultants um, in general, I suppose, for you, Gareth, in particular. Do you think you got the right balance between spending money with external consultants and leveraging the not inconsiderable in-house talent within Whitehall? I would just take one more as well before answering. Gavin Heyman from the Open Contracting Partnership. So no other country, as far as aware, used a VIP lane approach. I'm keen to hear what the actual lessons are that are learned from the VIP lane for future. Lots of other countries use kind of accelerated, um, I guess those accelerated mini competitions using a framework, pre-qualified people on the framework had separate teams doing that for the people running the competition. So that seems an important lesson for the UK. I just wanted to invite Gareth and others to reflect on what the lessons learned so we don't repeat the VIP lane, which may have been illegal. Thanks. 
So, let me talk about the VIP. I think you've maybe misunderstood what the VIP lane did. Everyone went through the same procurement process. No one got a buy through any of the stages in the procurement because they were in the VIP lane. You know, that, that's why I quoted the stats on, on how much volume actually went, went through you know, the, 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 the different approaches. Um, I think I'd, I'd reiterate what I said before. What we've got to try and do is make sure that we handle people that are coming into us in a way that is demonstrably separate from the way that they are then uh, procured. But we just frankly didn't have enough, enough people, so it was it, that's what caused it to get, get mushed up. Um, on, uh, on, on your excellent question on consulting, I'm sitting next to a consultant, so be very careful, obviously, what I, what I say here. So, uh, again, you know, in a resource-constrained environment, how do we, you know, how do we, how do we make sure we're getting value for money? How do we get the people in we need? So, you know, it's, you know, it's been covered, you know, extensively. That has come out in the inquiry as well. You know, there was a huge use of consultants in in the test and trace area, just to to bring people in. Could we have been uh, cuter, at, you know, specifying outputs rather than just body shopping? We'll, we'll, we'll see, but you know the answer to any of these questions is yeah, everything could have been done done better, but you know at the time. Uh, so I think, uh, have we got the right people with the right skills uh, in the right right place? That that's a that's a good question. How do we uh, how do we tee up a, a consulting? In the ideal world, you would tee up a each consulting uh, issue with you know. You're paying for the outcome, but when there's stuff coming at you and you just need, you know, more people, setting up that sort of structure is uh, is is quite tricky. Uh, type type of answer there, Sarah. Sure. Your your thoughts on how to procure consultants uh, effectively? <laughs> so uh, so I so, think so quick plan. consulting uh, yeah do I think consultants are good use of expert resource yes and do I think they were needed in parts of a pandemic yes because there was a massive capacity issue do I think it's a good use or is it good value for money to have consultants doing line roles no I don't think so and consultants are much better incentivized by delivering an outcome and doing all of the upskilling and then you saying goodbye and I think in some cases consultants stayed around for too long doing in-role jobs when yeah. some of that work could, probably could have just been finished. And it would also be remiss of me not to mention the uh, excellent guide produced by my colleague uh, Jill uh, for government uh, on how to procure consultancy services, which is available on our website. Um, I'm just going to take uh, another question um, from online from John Britton. Um, Gareth, you mentioned that judgment and forecasting is key. Uh, should this be the responsibility solely of uh, the UK HSA, or is there a role for the Cabin Office and the emerging resilience organisations? Hmm. Uh, well, it depends who... Well, back to, have we got the right group of experts uh, in the room? And I guess it rather depends what the, what the subject matter is. If it's flood defence, you know, defer uh, uh, the folks. Uh, if it's uh, something that is in HSA's uh, area of expertise, then 
de facto they're, 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 they're the experts. I guess the question is, how do you make sure there's enough diverse input to make sure we're not falling into falling into in, in, into uh, in, into uh, an assumed uh, position? So back to uh, back to what I what I mentioned on, on PP, the assumption that 20% wouldn't turn up, 20% of what turned up would be wouldn't be usable. We beat those targets, you know, uh, you know, out of sight. Unfortunately. Given the time it takes for stuff to come from China, just a logistical time, by the time we'd realized that we were running at a better hit rate, we'd already ordered a lot of stuff off the wrong forecasting metrics. By the time we realized that actually doctors uh, and, and uh, health staff were reusing eyewear and not just using it once and putting it in the bin, we'd already, you know. So I think there's a, there's a, a, a speed of feedback loop uh, issue uh, and, a, uh, uh, and, and an openness to, to changing those, those assumptions. Um, bear in mind also, what government works to is you know, what's called a reasonable worst case forecast, which is a pretty ghastly state of affairs. So that then is a political decision. Where do you want to set that reasonable worst case forecast? Because if that happens, no one would, would want it. Um, so if you provide equipment, services, people, staff to defeat that reasonable worst case, and that isn't what eventuates, you, it, it's easy then to say, well, gosh, you've wasted all the difference. Uh, to, back to an insurance analogy, uh, if you've insured your house you know, for £100,000 and it turns out a tree lands on it and the rebuilding cost is 300000 you wish you had insurance for 300000 if, on the other hand, you know, someone throws a football through the windows, stretching the analogy, and that, that only costs, you know, 500 quid, and that's your only claim during the year, you think, drat, why did I have an insurance policy for 300 grand? Uh, so, tricky questions, fortunately, above my pay grade. <laughs> so I want to come to you, um, one last um, question uh, from online, which is how we can ensure that we're not just awarding to those who are best at writing bids or who can afford the best bid writers rather than those who actually have the best product or service? Yeah, wow, great question. I wish I knew the answer for it just <laughs> for, my, for my own business. Um, so I think market engagement is really important for the commercial teams to understand what's out there. There's some great stuff in the new procurement regulations and the amendments going through to help SMEs, you know, if we target this as, a, as an SME question, so that some of the barriers to bidding aren't there, so they understand what's coming up. Um, and also things like insurance being in place at the bidding stage, making sure that's in place with the contracts award, but not as a barrier to entry. So I'm pleased to see those things in the reforms coming through. Um, and I think this is about commercial teams speaking more to the suppliers, understanding more what's in the market, so that they can und, you know, write a tender document set which encourages that innovation and encourages the best solutions for the market. Great. Well, we have run out of time, um, so I'm going to bring it to an end there. Uh, I want to thank our three panellists uh, for a brilliant discussion, uh, to Beringa for kindly supporting the event, uh, and to all those who've watched today or listened back later. Uh, our next event will be a keynote speech tomorrow by Sir James Bevan, the Chief Executive of the Environment Agency. Uh, do tune in. Uh, and until then, thank you and goodbye.